I've entitled the morning's message, Message to Pergamos. And again, please bear with me. The guys prayed for me at Men's Prayer yesterday that my voice will hold out with a pollen and a mold high. It's just, it's just the way that it is. So, um, as you look at the book of Revelation, again, um, the majority of Christianity do not take a literal view of the book. They spiritualize it or allegorize it. Um, but actually the book of Revelation, chapter one, verse three, it says that it's special. Blessed is he who reads and those who hears the words of this prophecy and keeps them um, that is written for the time is near. That's what we find in chapter one. And then what we find in chapter 22, the last um, chapter, it said, be careful that no man adds to or takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is at hand. Now it sounds to me like the Lord's pretty serious about this particular book and taking it literally. And so we do. And I've found out over, over the years that the deeper you go, um, the deeper it gets. The key verse, again, um, I'll be repetitive on some of these comments because they're um, just important to remember. The key to the book of Revelation is chapter one, looking at verse 19. The year is 96, 95 AD, and John is on the island of Patmos. Um, the other Disciples have been martyred for their faith. John is there, we're told, because he was preaching the gospel. So he's sort of a prison island off off the uh, shores of what we'd call modern-day Turkey. All these seven letters to these seven churches are in, in a clockwise order. We started with Ephesus, because when you go from Patmos, which is an island, the first city you run into would be Ephesus. And then we just sort of follow it around. And we find ourselves this morning um, after Ephesus, it was Smyrna last week, Pergamus this week. But John, um, in verse 19, and you want to look down at it, he has this vision of the Lord holding seven stars and walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And in verse 19, we have the key to the book, write the things which you have seen, that's chapter one. What did John see? Well, he saw a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. John, write it down. And then he says, write the things that are, that would be present tense. So chapters two and chapter three are what we call the church age, beginning with Ephesus, going all the way through to Laodicea. And uh, I do see a time progression. I'm not dogmatic about that, but um, I do see... um, periods of of time as we make our way through these books. So currently we're in the second division of the book of Revelation. We're in chapters two and three, and um, I believe that comes to an end when we get to chapter four, because the third division of the book, after the church age, is write the things that are hereafter. So there's the key, write the things that are chapter one. Write the things that are, Um, present tense, the church age. As far as I can tell, we're still all here. (laughs) And, uh, but that day, I believe, is quickly winding up. I have never, in in my walk with the Lord, uh, seen the birth pains so exponentially manifesting themselves. And I think I've mentioned a couple times, the two biggest ones, of course, is uh, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, May 14th, 1948, and then this global pandemic. We've never experienced any, anything like that before. And I see, um, I see a broad range of emotion. And let me just tell you why it's so important to know your Bible in these days right here. It came up a lot in men's prayer yesterday. And that is people who really know their Bible and really know their God uh, have a solid mind, they're not fearful, and um, yet on the other end of that spectrum, people who don't know Christ, and we have 
not a clue what's in the word of God. Um, they are the ones that are demonstrating and showing a lot of the fear that's taking place right now. And um, I don't want to get too sidetracked on that, but chapter one, verse 19 is the key to the book. I do want to, from time to time, because we're teaching through Daniel, and I'll be saying this a lot also, you can't understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. So I'm going out of my way to connect the dots, um, and I'll be doing it again uh, this morning as we um, make some references to um, Daniel. And then, of course, the last section of the book is uh, what we call from chapter 6 through um, 16 in that general area. We have what we call, it's got a lot of different names. My favorite name for the tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. And I think it's very important that you understand that God owes Israel, according to Daniel chapter nine, seven more years. And it's no coincidence at all that that length of time uh, from chapter six to 16 is exactly a seven year period of time. And the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to um, show you that it's divided right in the middle. Daniel nine verse 27 tells us that he will the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel for seven years, and then in the middle of that period of time, we have an event called the abomination of desolation. So all the way up to the time when Jesus was here, in Daniel 9.26, it says concerning Jesus that he will be executed, but not for himself. Um, That's interesting because he was innocent of all charges. Pilate said so four times. So I'm the guilty one, (laughs) you're the guilty one. So that was fulfilled to the day. Daniel 9 tells you to the day that Jesus allowed himself to be worshiped as the son of God. And then um, we have this gap between Daniel 9, 26 and verse 27 of the time that Jesus died until the time that the Antichrist, that's yet future. So all that to say this, when we get to um, the third division of the book, it is a seven year period of time that Jesus himself verified on Matthew 24 when he said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So he's pointing us yet future. Uh, most of Bible prophecy is fulfilled, but um, again, the big one for our lifetime is Israel. And now that that's in place, according to the parable of the, of the fig tree, um, I believe and teach, all Calvary chapels do, that uh, the generation that sees that will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. Now that's a mouthful to take in, and pretty heavy when you consider the implications of what I just said. So we live in times where a lot of people are very aware um, of what's happening and why and where it's headed. And then we have a whole nether realm of people that, um, oh, do I dare go there? <laughs> Want the United States of America to become a social, socialist com- country. There, I said it. <laughs> and they had, don't have a clue of... Uh, Uh, that there will be a one-world government and a one-world religion, and that is where we're headed, my friends. But I'm saving that for next week. Mary teased you a little bit about next week. Next week we'll be talking more and more about that. Well, with that much, a little bit of an introduction, I want to tell a little personal story of my visit to Pergamos, also called Pergamum. Um, Years ago, in the early 90s, you could take a trip to Israel for 2,500 bucks, and that would include a side trip. So we had side trips. We'd go to Rome. We'd go to Egypt, see the pyramids. But one of them was the seven churches. And so I was actually at Pergamos. And I remember getting off the bus and what was in front of me. And I can't describe it, so I went online and got a picture. I'm going to show it to you. This is what I saw when I got uh, off the bus. Now, the, what that is, I, I, I had this deja vu 
moment that I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I've been here before. I know this place. And it was driving me crazy because I said, did it really happen? I'm looking at it and I'm going, what, what, what is, what's this, all this? And, and then it dawned on me that that picture is in Revelation chapter two next to um, my Bible. I went and opened my Bible and I looked at it and looked at that and looked at that and I, that's where I saw it before. I wasn't really here. <laughs> that's the Temple of Zeus and that's what you're looking at. And uh, I gotta tell you, of all the, Ephesus is incredible, but um, Pergamum, because it's up on the hill, uh, has um, just a beautiful view that is, um, um, their amphitheater is the steepest one I've ever seen. But uh, I thought I would tell that. I, ha- I was in the bus, I came out and I was standing, and I thought, I have been here before. <laughs> No, you weren't, Dwight. You just saw out a picture. <laughs> Let me give you a little background about Pergamus, also called Pergamum. It was founded about 1,000 years before the Christian era. It was home of the wealth and fashion, a seat of culture and learning, uh, stimulated by a great library of 200,000 volumes. Now, what they were known for is the quality of um, the paper that were used for their parchments. That's one of the things that Pergamus was known for. It was the Roman capital of Asia. It was a religious center uh, with magnificent pagan uh, temples, if you can use those terms, the most splendid of which was devoted to, and I want you to know I practiced saying this because I couldn't figure out how to say it, so you know those little apps you can go and say, how do you spell, how do you say this word? And it actually comes up and tells you. Well, the, uh, the god of medicine is called, let's see, I'm gonna get it right now, Seculipus, Seculipus, there, Seculipus. And basically the symbol of, um, of this medicine and the worship of it was the form of a living serpent but it's a sign for medicine today, a serpent on the pole. Now I'm gonna be coming back to that a little bit later, um, but uh, that, that just for right now. Now, the understanding of the word of Pergamus, um, it's a little bit difficult. Pergamus means tower. Uh, the symbol gamos in Greek means marriage. While too much emphasis need not be put upon this, it is interesting that both characterize this church as to its worldly greatness, the tower, and to its unholy union with the world um, in marriage. In John's day, there existed a flourishing uh, Christian assembly in Pergamus, and it was probably founded by the Apostle Paul. Now, as you look at verse one, uh, verse 12, we've gone through Ephesus, we've made it through Smyrna, we're going to look at um, Pergamus this morning. And the Lord begins with an interesting title for himself. To the angel of the church in Pergamus write. So these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Every one of these seven letters to the seven churches, the Lord chooses a title of himself that will describe his concern for that particular church. Last week to the suffering church of Smyrna, you might remember the title that he used was the one who was dead and came back to life because it was that period of time where some five million people were martyred between 100 and 312 AD until Constantine came into power. So there's nothing bad said about Philadelphia. There's nothing bad said about Smyrna. But the title that he chose, they could identify with because many of them were dying. Here, the title that he uses is these things as he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. And I'm gonna be using this also when I talk about Balaam in here just a little bit. Jesus' title that he chooses for this particular church. When we go to other, two other places, that it's gonna be used, we're gonna see that it is in the form of judgment. 
when he talks about the sword. So if you're in Revelation 19, um, this is the second coming of Christ. Let's pick it up in verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in white linen, uh, clean, followed him on white horses. Notice verse 15. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with he would strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God. So we have here uh, the nations of the world gathering together against him. This would be Psalm 2 if you're taking notes. But his form of judgment in other words, the Lord just speaks. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the, that's the idiom that we would be using here. But that's the title that he uses for the church of Pergamos. In other words, he's telling them, he's gonna tell them, repent or else. And the sharpness of it um, is he's choosing this to get their attention because he's serious about, we call this the compromising church. And we'll be developing that thought a little bit more. But I wanted to show you this in Revelation 19. I'll be showing it again when we go back and look at Balaam. So let's go back to chapter two. Um, The title he uses is He Who Has a Sharp Two-Edged Sword in reference to uh, judgment. Verse 13a, I'm gonna have 13a and 13b because there's two different thoughts here. 13a, I know your works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And I just, you have to pause. And um, Pergamus bears the inevitable distinction of being called the seat of Satan. Uh, The word seat here is basically the word throne. Thoros in the Greek is a point of government activity. But... When I, uh, I'm a fan of a guy named F.B. Boyd. Um, old School Assembly of God's from Springfield. His book's probably 40 or 50 years old. But it's one of the best I've ever read on the book of Revelation. So I want to give credit where credit is due. He's actually, what I'm about to quote to you comes from his book. It's simply called Studies in Revelation if you're interested in getting that particular book but it's one of the best I've ever come across. He comments on Satan's throne, where it started and where it ended up, and it's extremely interesting. So I'm quoting um, Mr. Boyd right now. The significance of this is found, Satan's throne, is found in Babylonian mysticism. Chaldean priests, now when I use the word Chaldean, I'm simply talking about a Babylonian. Babylonians were called Chaldeans but they were priests fleeing before the conquering Persians. Now, what are we learning in Daniel? We're we're learning the um, lineage, if you will, of world ruling empires. Egypt was first. Men's prayer meeting yesterday, we talked about how Assyria fell uh, when one angel took out 185,000 Assyrians and the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, goes home and his two sons kill him. Assyria falls basically in one night. Now this Wednesday, just for a little teaser, we're in Daniel chapter four. And Babylon is gonna fall, how quickly? In one night. So we have this fall, uh, Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, and when it, they fell to the who? The Medo-Persians. And Daniel was still there in the first and second year of Darius. So Daniel's still around when we get to that part of Daniel. But it tells us, let me read it again. Um, these Babylonian priests, when 
Babylon was being conquered, they began to flee from the conquering Persians and they took refuge and settled in Pergamos. Uh, Their worship consisted of the deification of the empire, emperor. Attalus III, the king of Pergamos, this is 133 BC, was priest of this ascetic cult and willed his title to the Romans. So we have a progression going on here. Babylon, Pergamos, where Satan's throne is, but now uh, it was deification of the Romans and it's gonna eventually make its way to Rome. The title of the Babylonian high priest, catch this, was Pontifex Maximus. Not too many Catholics here. (laughs) Or chief, what that means, or chief uh, bridge builder, meaning one who spans the gap between mortals and Satan and his host. Uh, Julius Caesar first assumed this royal priesthood under the Latin title Pontifex Maximus. Thus, divine honors were conferred upon the Roman emperors but later assumed by the, pope, by the Pope. That's the Pope's title, Pontifus Maximus. And where did it start from? Babylon. And now in the middle, they fled to the queen uh, jewel of, of uh, Asia, and that would have been Pergamus. And there they stayed until eventually all this moved on into Rome. Now, more on that next Sunday. I was really tempted to talk more about that, but next week we're going to be dealing with the Church of Thyatira, and so I'll be talking more about that then. All right, we got past 13a, so let's go back to to it because we have a change of thought here. I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. So he commends some of the people in the church and have not denied my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So I I thought for sure Antipas, um, uh, the name Antipas means one against all, probably the name of a faithful pastor we are told who was put to death um, by the priest of Sakilipus, there I did it, and he was burned in a brazen bull that Mary was showing, which would have been to Zeus. Now, I don't want to get too graphic here. I actually tried to look this up, and for the life of me, I don't know why this isn't in Fox's Book of Martyrs. I mean, Jesus himself says he was a martyr, and, um, but he, he's not in there. But I did track it down how Antipas died. Antipas was, um, this bull was rounded out on the inside and they put Antipas into it and then they slowly cooked him from the bottom up. And I know that's graphic, but um, that's how he was martyred inside um, this brazen bull. And um, we find that uh, he he was martyred where Satan dwells. That's 13. Um, in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you because you have those there who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So we have two things going on here. Old Testament history, and I'm actually gonna take you back to Numbers, and I'm gonna walk, walk you through this a little bit. Um, stated um, in Numbers that Balaam, he's, a, he's one I can't figure out, was that uh, mysterious hireling prophet who, forbidden to curse God's people Israel, got counsel from Balak, who was the king of Moab. Balak is scared to death because everywhere Israel goes, their enemies are defeated. And right before they get into the promised land, they come across Moab. And we'll go back and and we'll read those verses. Um, The king of Moab 
to entice Israel into Moab's adultery and um, accompanying obscenities will eventually um, bring a plague upon the children of Israel. We're going to find about 24,000 people died because of Balaam. Thus was Israel corrupted from her place of national separation into Jehovah. And that's really, as we're looking at Pergamos, that's what we want to know. This was a compromising church. Uh, The idea, we as believers, didn't the Lord say, we're the salt and we're the light. In other words, we're supposed to be the one who's doing the influencing in the world. I haven't asked for amen yet this morning. Okay, but in this case, it was the other way around. You see, the world was influencing the church instead of the church influencing the world. And they were a compromising church to a great to a great degree. The mention of Balaam and Balak in connection with Pergamos indicates that this Christian church had lost its separated the church actually the word church actually mean called out ones. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And it doesn't mean we come out from the world and because Paul says we're always going to be in the world. We're going to be working next to people who don't know or love the Lord. So you can't go out of the world, literally, but we're not to be um, associated with its customs, especially as it gets worse as time goes on. So this indicates that the Christian church had lost its pilgrim character and was settling down amidst the corruption of the world in both literal and spiritual fornication. So with that much, I'd like you to turn with me to the, to the book of Numbers, chapter 22, one of my favorite stories is in here. Um, chapter 22, the background to this is back in um, the first couple of verses of chapter 22, where the king of Moab, Balak, is seeking after Balaam. And he sends messengers to him. And um, verse three says, they were exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick, sick with dread because of the children of Israel. He's scared to death and he's the king. But he heard about Balaam and the rumor was whoever he blesses gets blessed and whoever he curses gets cursed. So if you look at verse seven, he sends a delegation with the diviner's fee in their hand. In other words, they want to buy Balaam off by getting him to curse the children of Israel. And he says, well, I can't do that without talking to the Lord first. So he talks to the Lord and says, don't do it because I have blessed him. Don't do it. So... um, Delegation goes back and tells Balak, he says, he's not coming. He says, well, I'll tell you what. I want somebody with more authority, um, more prestige, uh, take more money, and uh, indicate to him I'm serious about whatever he wants he can have. So you go back and tell him again. So he comes back, and uh, they, they tell him, no, the king is really serious about giving you whatever you want. And you take the money and run. And then, I like this because it's sort of a a hint, he says, well, even if he gave me a whole house full of silver and gold, hint, 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 (laughs) even then I couldn't do it. And um, uh, the Lord says, he talked to the Lord about it, he says, well, all right, Balaam, go. If you want to go, go. But it was a test more than anything because the Lord is angry, in verse 22, because he went And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him and he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Do you have this picture? Balaam on a donkey, a couple of his buddies with him and he's he's on his way. And now, um, I've had dogs my whole life and I could swear my dog could see things that I couldn't see. Sometimes you're sitting there petting them and all of a sudden they're going, and I go, what are they seeing that I'm not seeing? Can animals cease? In this case, yes. It's biblical. 
Now the donkey saw, and the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn. It's interesting to me that the Holy Spirit ties in a drawn sword for the title of Jesus for the Church of Pergamos, and then they have the doctrine of Balaam, and again we have a drawn sword. Interesting, probably just coincidence. (laughs) And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into a field, so Balaam struck the donkey to turn back on the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards and a wall, and on this side and on that side, and when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam got angry. He struck the donkey with the staff. And then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Tell me the Lord doesn't have a sense of humor. And said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Now, that's weird enough, but it's even weirder is that Balaam talks back. <laughs> I'd give anything to see this one. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you've abused me, I wish there was a sword in my hand and I'd kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey, on which you have never since I became yours to this day? Have I ever done anything like this before? And he's, again, here he's, no. (laughs) Conversation going on. Donkey's rationalizing and justifying his actions. And uh, Balaam's going around just talking with him like Mr. Ed or somebody, you know. (laughs) Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, what? With a drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. We can't go through the four times that he goes up on a high mountain to curse God's people. But every time he tries to come out with a curse, all he could do was bless them with something like, oh, how beautiful are the tents of Israel and how your love has been shed upon them. And uh, there's no scepter, um, chapter 24 uh, a scepter of actually a prophecy about Jesus. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So, in the middle of blessing, we have prophecy in chapter 24. Well, this happens four times. And now, Balaam is, Balak is really upset. And um, basically, Balaam says to Balak, Look, I can't do it. But what he does do, we learn later. He says, I can't curse him, but God will. And I'm gonna tell you how. So if you turn to chapter 25, we'll just read a couple verses. At the end of chapter 24 is a a final blessing. Verse 25 says, then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place and Balak also went his way, but not without first getting counsel about how God would bless, uh, curse his own people. So what happened, verse one of chapter 25, then Israel remained in the acacia grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Hey, Balak, all you have to do is get your pretty young gals and show them how you worship your God. And of course, as we read earlier, they were accused of sexual immorality, literally in the church of Pergamos. And so the result of this is verse nine, God sends a plague, and those who died in the plague were 24,000 Israelis. And so he couldn't curse them, but um, turn with me, at this point, and make one more connection to the book of Jude, which is right before the book of Revelation. There's one chapter long. And the book of uh, Jude is 
judgment, past and yet future judgments of false teachers. And what we read in Jude, well, let me draw your attention to verse 11, he's talking about the characteristics of false doctrine, and Pergamus had it. So in verse 11 we read, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. So now we get a, heart, a New Testament heart look at what was going on inside here with Balaam. He was greedy. Oh, even if he gave me a whole house full of silver and gold, hint, hint, I uh, probably still couldn't do it. So he was greedy. They have the doctrine of Balaam in Pergamos. So what are we learning about this church? Well, they were committing sexual immorality. They were greedy, notice it says, for profit. In other words, they had alternative motives for being in the church. It was to, for greed and to make profit. So with that much, let's go back to um, Revelation 2. And verse 14 will take on more meaning now. The church of Pergamos, I have a few things against you because you have those who hold to the doctrine. What was the doctrine of Balaam? Prophet for greed. Who taught Balak, see he taught him, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And this was tolerated in the church. And then, verse 15, he's got another problem. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Now, remember when we were studying Ephesus? They had left their first love. And um, he said, repent or else. But he doesn't leave him hanging with that guilty feeling over them. He immediately tells them something good about the church of Ephesus. And that is, in verse 6, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Made up of two Latin words, Nico and laity. Basically, it's the establishment of the priesthood over laity, which is people. In other words, a hierarchy was coming into the church of Pergamos. Roman worship. And um, I'll talk more about this next week, but where it's most visual is in Roman Catholicism, where you have the Pope, and then you have the cardinals, and then you have the bishops, and then you have the priests, and so on and so forth. You have a hierarchy. And the Lord says, I hate it. Remember when James and John <laughs> were arguing who's going to be the greatest? And they get mom to, to go to the Lord and say, now when you enter your kingdom, Lord, can John sit on your right hand and James on your left hand? And he says, you're just getting it all wrong. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, what do you have to be? the servant of all. I hate the idea of a hierarchy. But if you want to be great, then learn to be the servant of all. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve. We are to have the mind of Christ. So our mentality should be, what can I do to be a blessing to somebody, to build them up and encourage them in the ways of the Lord? rather than seeking to have a position or fame or profit or have an alternative motive. All right, what Ephesus rejected, Pergamos embraced. You hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Now the warning, repent or else. That should scare anybody when Jesus Christ says repent or else. I will come to you quickly and fight against you with what? The sword of my mouth, or the word of God. And then he says in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a phrase that's repeated to all seven of the churches. And all seven of the churches would have read every letter, not just the letter to their church. They would have all been um, read. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I want to take 17 with part A and B2 and talk a little bit 
about this manna. And to do so, you need to turn back with me to um, uh, Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16. Now this is a whole Bible study so rich within itself. The manna for, um, for God's congregation in the wilderness was heavenly in origin. It was white, round, and sweet. It was a supernatural food and gave sustenance during their pilgrimage. For 40 years, they ate manna. They didn't always like it. They tried to do everything they could to change it. They complained about it. Want to go back to Egypt? Remember those leeks and onions and watermelons? Mm. And uh, they were sick of manna up to here. They tried to boil it, bake it, barbecue it. Banana bread. Manicotti. You know, they tried everything. And they got sick of it and they complained often about it. But in chapter 16, picking it up in verse 14, we find that when it first came, the first time, and when, verse 14, and when the layer of dew lifted, though on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said, this is a bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of people. And let every man take for those who are in his tent. And the children of Israel did so, gather some more, some less. Some people like to eat more, some people like to eat less. Said, I'll give you that choice. So when they measured it by omers, he who had gathered much had nothing over, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And then Moses said, let no one leave any of it until morning, no leftovers. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to the need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much uh, bread, two omers for each one, and the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, and then he said, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow's a Sabbath rest. It's a holy day. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourself all that remains to be kept until morning. And they did so, and they laid it up till morning, and as Moses commanded, and it did not stink. So this is a supernatural miracle that on the Sabbath day, you could gather the day before twice as much because you weren't to be working on the Sabbath. So this is a supernatural miracle that is taking place here. And Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the fields. Six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, uh, which the Lord will be done. And now some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, weren't listening, but they found none. And he gets upset, said, how long are you guys gonna do this? And we find that they ate manna for 40 years. Beginning here, the day they entered the promised land, no more manna, and uh, that's when it ended. Now here's, here's my point with this. Manna is something that had to be eaten on a daily basis. Jesus said man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. And you can't just get fed on Sunday morning and think you're gonna make it through the week. Okay, you can see where I'm going with this? You know, the idea is um, getting fed today um, means you have to give us this day our daily bread. And the idea of being in the word of God, I cannot stress enough, especially in the times that we live. 
yes, we've all missed each other, and it's good seeing everybody again in the fellowship and the worship and being able to have a Bible study where we could actually look at some, somebody. Too bad it's got to be me, but you gotta, it's got to be somebody. <laughs> and um, yet the idea here that's so clear in the scriptures, again, for every New Testament teaching, Old Testament picture. What's the picture here? You have to eat your bread daily. And here's the thing, Acts chapter two, verse 42, the apostles' doctrine, what was that? It was Bible study. And then the fellowship, and then prayer and breaking of bread. Those four things. And when I look at those four things, there's a model for the early church. And whenever I say that, you know what I also add to it? That's doable. That's doable. You're not getting people burnt out on programs or other things, um, but that's doable for the long haul. So wherever you're at, however old you are with the Lord, one constant needs to be there, and that is what you've taken in today, spiritually speaking, your spiritual food, isn't gonna sustain you tomorrow morning. Didn't Paul say, I have to die daily? You know, I wait, do you, I'm, I don't think I'm the only one here. I wake up in the flesh every single morning. <laughs> I'm probably sitting before I get out of bed, you know, in thought, word, or deed, or something. And you need just to sit down and go, oh yeah, there's my wisdom for today. Oh yeah, there's my Bible. First things first. Well, I have to confess, coffee's first, and then, 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 then that. But uh, again, if we get nothing out of this message this morning, Pergamos was a compromising church. And the idea is the world was influencing them because they weren't getting spiritually fed on on their own. They had nothing to put out. And uh, we only have something to put out if we have something inside. Another good place for an amen. And that is God's word. It will not return void. It says if you put out the word of God, it will not return void. I won't tell you who, but somebody told me this morning that made my day. He said, I led, I led somebody to Jesus last night. I said, really? Yeah, just like that. And he was broken, he was crying, and it was the real deal. And I said to this person, well, you just made my day. Because he's been you know, slowly working on this individual for a period of time. But because of all that's going on right now, he's got questions. And it was uh, easy picking for this particular person. So let's go back, we got one more to look at, and that is the promise, and every, every church has a promise. That was 17a, now 17b says, and I will give some of the hidden man to eat, and then he says, I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. We're talking intimacy here. Intimacy between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting to me is that John is writing this. And when, one of the things that we learned when we were studying through the Gospel of John is that every person that Jesus had personal contact with, one-on-one contact with, he would tell that person something about themselves that nobody else knew. And it would usually blow their mind, like the woman at the well or Nicodemus. Uh, pick out the character. And all of a sudden, uh, there's, there's a, how do you know that? Well, because I'm your maker. And I know, and the idea with this new name is, um, um, carries with it the idea of this hidden manna and the new name, the white stone, this reference has been explained as a token dropped uh, by the voter of old into, um, well, it carries the idea of name with approved recognition, let's put it that way, um, and divine approval for the overcomer. As a precious gift for him, white, of course, signifies purity or approvalness, and stone denotes stability, endurance, and steadfastness. New name. One befitting our individual, personal character, and excellent. 
It's the Lord's um, estimate of us. And I'll give you an example. Remember Jacob? What does Jacob mean? Trickster, surplanter. But he changed his name from Israel to Prince of God. Perhaps our battles fought and victories won will warrant uh, the conferring of a name which which significance can be known only to us and the Lord as an outgrowth of his faithfulness in dealing with us. So you're gonna have a new name someday. Whatever it is now, it's gonna be changed. And even the Lord himself, we're told, is going to have a new name. And I think of the body of Christ in the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, the body of Christ is huge. So how is he gonna have this intimate, personal relationship with just me or with just you? Well, you're gonna have a new name. He's gonna know it and you're gonna know it, and nobody else is gonna know it. And that spells intimacy to me between me and my broom. I'm the bride, he's the groom. And that intimacy is going to be there. Oh, I hemmed and hawed about telling you this, but I thought, it's true, it happened, so go ahead. He's gonna call you, it says, um, I will call you by name. Um, Isaiah turned with me as I'm getting ready to close with this story here we'll close with this this morning to uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 43 Isaiah 43 this is rich stuff verse 1 but now thus says the Lord God who created you O Jacob and he who formed you O Israel fear not for I have redeemed you and I have called you by your name You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you have a global pandemic, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One. And he called him by name. And Isaiah 45, verse four, if you're taking notes, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel's sake, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. And then in Isaiah 62, 2, the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the Lord will name. Sometimes when you're going through a trial, the Lord shows up in a very, very special way. I've never seen the Lord. But I had, um, um, I was, it was 1973, and I was at a crossroads. Um, I was actually feeling I was supposed to be called into ministry. That was the sense I was getting. But I said, Lord, we're, we're talking the rest of my life here. And you remember Pastor Chuck, Chuck says about being a pastor, oh, so you're the guys who are gonna give up your weekends the rest of your life. <laughs> So I'm in that place of counting the costs and realizing this is, you know, I don't want to play church. I like to travel. I like to ski. And if I become a Christian, I'm not going to be able to travel anymore. I've been around the world so many times I can't even count any. And uh, I'm sure the Lord was having a good laugh when I told him, well, can't do that anymore. So this is what happened. I was weighing all these things down, and I was staying with some friends, and I heard my name called. And um, I woke the people up that were there, found out they weren't sleeping, and I said, did you hear that? They said, hear what? I said, you didn't hear it. It's hard for me to explain. Revi Litvin had the same experience when she got saved at Francis Schaeffer's retreat in Labrie, Switzerland, because she was confused at 18, and she needed to hear from God. And I told her my story. She said, Dwight, let me finish the story for you. You heard the voice audibly, didn't you? But it was inside. I said, you nailed it. How did you know that? That's exactly what happened to me. I heard an audible voice. What did it say? Dwight. That's it. And it was audible, but it was an audible from the inside. So I threw that in the notes this morning. And I said, should I share it? And um, I I said, Lord, this really happened to me. And if one of the promises uh, to the church is we're gonna have a new name, 
and I'm gonna call you by that name. For me, what it did is solidify that I was to be called in the ministry. Make your calling and election sure. And I was at that crossroads and I said, okay, you got me. And that was 1973, just two or three years ago. (laughs) When you get to be my age, you think that way. The Church of Pergamos was repent or else. Repent of what? Wrong motives. The world influencing them instead of the church influencing the world. We are not to compromise. The little jokes about banana bread and manicotti, you know where I stole that from? Keith Green, you know the name of that album? No Compromise. Some of you younger people here, Google Keith Green. He was the best that there ever was. Let's stand and we'll close the prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we continue to make our way through the book of Revelation, um, we can learn from each of these churches. Lord, for those of us that got convicted because we're not um, eating our daily bread, Um, We pray, Lord, that you'd help us receive that exhortation and um, not be satisfied with today, but wake up tomorrow and just get into the word or a good commentary or a good daily devotion. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word and the precious promises that you've given to your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Five, verse four, if you're taking notes, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel's sake, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. And then in Isaiah 62, 2, the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the Lord will name. Sometimes when you're going through a trial, the Lord shows up in a very, very special way. I've never seen the Lord. But I had, um, um, I was, it was 1973, and I was at a crossroads. Um, I was actually feeling I was supposed to be called into ministry. That was the sense I was getting. But I said, Lord, we're, we're talking the rest of my life here. And you remember Pastor Chuck, Chuck says about being a pastor, oh, so you're the guys who are gonna give up your weekends the rest of your life. <laughs> So I'm in that place of counting the costs and realizing this is, you know, I don't want to play church. I like to travel. I like to ski. And if I become a Christian, I'm not going to be able to travel anymore. I've been around the world so many times I can't even count any. And uh, I'm sure the Lord was having a good laugh when I told him, well, I can't do that anymore. So this is what happened. I was weighing all these things down, and I was staying with some friends, and I heard my name called. And um, I woke the people up that were there, found out they weren't sleeping, and I said, did you hear that? They said, hear what? I said, you didn't hear it. It's hard for me to explain. Revi Litvin had the same experience when she got saved at Francis Schaeffer's retreat in Libri, Switzerland, because she was confused at 18, and she needed to hear from God. And I told her my story. She said, Dwight, let me finish the story for you. You heard the voice audibly, didn't you? But it was inside. I said, you nailed it. How did you know that? That's exactly what happened to me. I heard an audible voice. What did it say? Dwight. That's it. And it was audible, but it was an audible from the inside. So I threw that in the notes this morning. And I said, should I share it? And um, I I said, Lord, this really happened to me. And if one of the promises uh, to the church is we're gonna have a new name, and I'm gonna call you by that name. For me, what it did is solidify that I was to be called into ministry. Make your calling and election sure. And I was at that crossroads, and I said, okay, you got me. And that was 1973, just two or three years ago. When you get to be my age, you think that way. The church of Pergamos was repent or else. Repent of what? Well, wrong motives. The world influencing them instead of 
the church influencing the world. We are not to compromise. The little jokes about banana bread and manicotti, you know where I stole that from? Keith Green, you know the name of that album? No Compromise. Some of you younger people here, Google Keith Green. He was the best that there ever was. Let's stand and we'll close the prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we continue to make our way through the book of Revelation, um, we can learn from each of these churches. Lord, for those of us that got convicted because we're not um, eating our daily bread, um, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us receive that exhortation and um, not be satisfied with today, but wake up tomorrow and just get into the word or a good commentary or a good daily devotion. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word and the precious promises that you've given to your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.